Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. I'm going to be covering a big section this morning. Galatians 1, 11 is where we're going to start. Uh, but I wanted to start by, by telling you a little story. This is a picture of my grade school in uh, Ithaca, New York. My parents went for vacation. They went to Maine, they, so they drove back through Ithaca. And I said, could you please take a picture of my grade school? This is Bell Sherman Elementary School uh, where I went to grade school. And I have lots of great memories, so I asked him to take a picture. And I wasn't, I wasn't specifically thinking about this illustration when I asked him to take the picture, but uh, this week I was reminded of this memory. Uh, I have lots of memories, wonderful memories of grade school, but uh, probably my favorite part about grade school was recess. And I, my favorite part of recess was when I got to pick the teams. Right, you know, you, you kind of rotate that through. There's, there's kind of a pecking order who gets to pick teams. Well, I, I can remember one day specifically in fifth grade where it was my turn to pick the teams. And I looked out at all the kids who were standing there. I don't remember what we were playing, you know, if it was dodgeball, football, whatever. I can't remember the specifics of that. But I remember looking at all of these kids and seeing uh, one boy in particular. His name was William. We called him Birdie. Uh, but Birdie was short for, for bird brain. Now, that's not very nice, is it? You know, and kids are <laughs> not nice. You know, and it's funny, thinking back now, I, I can't remember, why do we call him bird brain? Because he was one of the smartest kids in class. That's probably why. You're probably all jealous that he did better in all the exams and stuff. So anyway, Birdie's standing out there, and Birdie wasn't a great athlete. He never got picked first. He was always picked last. And I'm looking at Birdie, and I felt really bad for Birdie. And so, you know, in this one great noble act, I thought, well, I'll pick Birdie first. I picked Birdie first. And, you know, it was, you know he didn't do all that great, but it, it was just... Uh, an event for him, and it started to build his confidence. He worked on his sports, and, and he became better athletically. He was al- already really smart, so he became this great scholar athlete and went on to live an incredible life, and he could look back to that day when I picked him. <laughs> now, the first part of that story is true. The rest of it's entirely made up. There was no way I was going to pick Birdie, right? Because then we'd lose. I'm not gonna, I don't want to lose the game, so I didn't pick Birdie. <laughs> But wouldn't it have been great if I did? You know? Wouldn't it have been great if Bertie could look back to that day? It'd be great for Bertie, it'd be great for me. You know? He looks back and says, Yeah, on that day, my whole life was changed. But it didn't happen that way. But I thought it was still a good illustration. <laughs> because that's what God does with us. Men and women, we are Bertie. Okay? We don't deserve to be chosen for the team. And yet God in his grace looks out at us and he says, I want you on my team. I'm choosing you. I'm selecting you. And he brings us onto his team and it transforms us. It changes our whole life. That's what Galatians chapter one through two is all about. Paul is trying to make the point that his gospel is the one true gospel. And where does he start? Well, in chapters three and four, he's going to get doctrinal. He's going to go really deep into the Old Testament. Chapters one and two, he starts with his own life. He says, look at my life. My life can only be explained by the grace of God. Look with me in verses 11 and 12. Paul says, for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the thesis for chapters 1 and 2. Paul's saying, this is the one true gospel. And if you look at my life, my life can only be explained by the grace of God. Only the grace of God would choose a man like me. Only the grace of God could change 
a man like me and then put a man like me into service, into apostleship. Only the grace of God can prove what has happened in my life. So what I want us to do this morning is we're going to look at a snapshot of Paul's life in chapters 1 and 2. Let's begin in chapter 1 and verse 13. Paul says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Before Paul knew Jesus Christ, he was actually an enemy of God. He thought he was doing God a favor, but he was actually an enemy of God. Look at verse 13 again. He says, you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. That word for persecute, it's important to know, it's, it's actually in the imperfect tense, which means this was the continual manner of Paul's life. He was persecuting continually the church of God, and it says he was doing so beyond measure. That's the word from which we get hyperbole. Okay, exceedingly, excessively, with all of my energy, I was persecuting the church of God, and I was trying to destroy it. It's a word that was used of soldiers entering a city and ravaging it, tearing down all the buildings, lighting things on fire, and killing men, women, and children. Paul says, this was my attitude and my action toward the church of God. Keep your place here in Galatians, and I want you to turn back to the book of Acts. Look at Paul's, the description of Paul by Luke in Acts chapter 8. In verse 1, it says, Saul, who would later be called Paul, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Paul busts in their doors and he grabs men and women and pulls them physically out of their house, away from their children, throws them into prison, and some of them would eventually be put to death. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. It wasn't enough to cleanse Jerusalem of these Christians. Paul wants to go to one of the other major cities and get all the Christians out of there. Look at chapter 26 of Acts. Verse 9, Paul is relating his testimony. He says, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, that is, speak against the name of Jesus Christ. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Do you see the anger in Paul? He's furiously enraged at these Christians, and the great irony is he thought he was serving God. 
But in fact, he was blaspheming God. He was speaking against the very name and nature of God because he was rejecting Jesus as the Son of God. But he was out of control in his anger. Turn back to Galatians again with me in verse 14. Paul says, I was advancing in Judaism. The word means literally uh, to, to blaze a path, to cut through the forest. The image was of a ship that is making progress against a headwind. He is advancing, he's pressing forward in Judaism. Beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. In other words, Paul was a lover not of God, but he was a lover of religion. Paul doesn't say, I was pressing forward in my love for God, but I was pressing forward in my exercise of religion. Paul's competitive. Paul's competitive. He's looking around at everyone else around him, his contemporaries, and he's not judging himself by just the common people, but by the most religious people, and he's saying, I'm far above them even. I'm making so much more progress than they are. I'm so much more spiritual. Here I am, and there they are. Good thing we never do that, right? Never compare our spirituality by anyone else. Never sit down in church and look next to us and say, it's a very small Bible you're carrying. I've got a study Bible here. (laughs) Oh yeah, well, I I have more things underlined and notes taken in my, well, yeah, but I memorize more verses. I have more Bible studies. You know, I, I'm leading a do-loss group and an upstream group, and I'm in a growth group, and I also do a Bible study with Campus Crusade, Navigators, and InterVarsity. Yeah, well, I have more Christian t-shirts than you have. Well, I have a fish on my car, but I don't get any tickets. Well, I never speed. I give more money to the poor. I've gone on more missions trips. You know, we've got all these things, and we do. You know, you, you, know you have your list of things. You sometimes don't consciously think about it, but you discover your list when someone's not conforming to your list. You know, that person doesn't raise their hands high enough. You know, that person raises their hands too much. That person doesn't sing with enough passion. That person doesn't like hymns. We've got our our list, and you know, we never make a list that is things uh, that are really deeply embedded in character, do we? We'd never be caught saying, well, I'm a lot more humble than that person. I'm a lot kinder. I'm a lot gentler. Right? If we were really humble or kind or gentle, we'd rejoice when we saw someone else who was humble and kind and gentle. But we don't make our lists like that. And we're going to talk a little bit more as we get into Galatians about this whole concept of legalism. But if you look at Paul's life, he says, I was the legalist of legalists. And the reason that he hated Christians is because Paul was trying to build his own little kingdom within a religious system. It wasn't that he loved God so much, but he loved his own little kingdom. And Christians were undermining the foundations of his kingdom by saying that God's Messiah had come. And so he hated them. And he judged himself based upon how vigorously he persecuted Christians. But then God entered into his life. He's walking down the road to Damascus to kill more Christians, and Jesus Christ appears to him. Look to me in chapter 1, verse 15. It says, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me. Paul goes from a self-righteous persecutor of Jesus Christ, an enemy, to the friend of God. 
And it happens just like that. It's amazing. It's dramatic. It is literally the greatest miracle that can occur when God takes someone and pulls them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Someone who does not deserve to be rescued. And he rescues them. Because that's what God does. And maybe this morning you were thinking to yourself, Brian, if you only knew the things that I've done. I don't don't deserve to be rescued by Jesus Christ. You're exactly right. You don't deserve to be rescued. But neither does anyone else sitting around you. That is exactly what grace means. That God comes and he rescues those who don't deserve to be rescued. I want you to look with me in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. So let's start in verse 6. This is a little section of scripture you should memorize. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Paul says, while we were still helpless, while we couldn't rescue ourselves, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. None of your sins surprise God. When Christ was hanging on the cross, he was foreseeing every sin that you would ever commit. And Christ died for those sins. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, hostile toward God, then we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We have confidence because God saves sinners. And you are a sinner and I am a sinner. In ways great and small, in my actions, in my words, in my motivations. And so the great hope of my life is that God saves sinners. That's exactly what he does. And what happens when God reaches down and he rescues someone out of the kingdom of darkness and puts them into the kingdom of light? That's when heaven throws a party, right? That's what Jesus tells us. That the angels rejoice. God stops all work. He says, angels, stop your work for a minute and let's have a huge party and let's celebrate. Because someone in Bangladesh just understood the gospel of grace, that it's an absolutely free gift. And they reached out and said, thank you, God, for giving me Jesus Christ, removing the debt of my sin and promising me eternal life. So heaven stops its work. The angels rejoice. They have a huge party. And then they get back to work. Oh, and then somebody else in India trusts Jesus Christ. And so they start another party again. And then they get back to work. And then somebody in College Station trusts Jesus Christ. And they have a party. And so what are they doing? Well, they're getting frustrated. Because the angels can't get their work done, right? And they're saying, God, come on. And he says, it's okay, because really, this is your work. You worship, and you rejoice when more worshipers are added. And remember, we got a lot of time to finish our work. (laughs) All of eternity, don't worry about that right now. I just got an email this morning that told me that uh, last week, a girl trusted Christ. She heard and understood the gospel of Jesus Christ and trusted Christ. Oh man, praise the Lord. Can we stop and have a party and celebrate? Because God rescues people who are lost. Turn with me to 1 Timothy. This passage that Troy just read. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul is again telling his autobiography and he frequently comes back to this because he says, I am a manifestation of the grace of God. I'm a portrait of of God's grace. I'm the poster child of one who shouldn't be rescued, but got rescued. Chapter one of 
First Timothy verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this very reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says at the end of the day, my life can only be a praise to God because I shouldn't have been rescued. But he said, God rescued a person like me so that everyone else could look at my life and say, wow, I could be rescued too. And if this morning you're sitting there saying to yourself, no, God, God wouldn't want someone like me. You're the exact kind of person that Jesus Christ died for. And so I beg you, if you have never said to God, thank you for giving me Jesus Christ. I don't deserve it. I'm a sinner. But thank you that Christ died for my sins. Please, I beg you this morning, just stop. And speak to God and say, God, thank you. I accept your gift of Christ. When you do that, God removes the debt of your sin. He gives you the promise of eternal life. He brings you onto his team, so to speak. And the beauty is he doesn't say to you, now, go sit at the end of the bench because you're an embarrassment to the team. That's not what he says. He brings you onto the team and then he brings in the process of transformation. And he makes you more and more and more like Jesus Christ. Look with me back again in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me. Sometimes when I'm studying the Bible, what I will do is I'll think, you know, if I were Paul and I were getting to write the Bible, how would I have written it? You know, how would I have written it specifically differently than Paul would write it? And when I hit Galatians 1.16, I think, I wouldn't have said it that way. I would have said, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Right? Not in me. But what Paul says, he picks a specific preposition. He says, no, God revealed his son in me. He is talking about regeneration. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ through his spirit comes and takes up residence inside of you. That's regeneration. You are born again. And having once been born again, it is once and for all, you will always have eternal life residing in you. God's spirit will dwell in you. And as Paul will say in chapter four, Christ will be formed in you. Now the beauty of Christianity is, as compared to uh, religions of the East, where your personality is lost, Heaven, so to speak, is you being lost, caught up, uh, absorbed in the all. In Christianity, your unique personality is maintained. God has made you as a unique person. You will always be unique. And you have a wonderful personality that Christ wants to begin to transform and to make more and more and more a reflection of him. Paul calls it uh, metamorphosis in Romans chapter 12. A transformation of your character. And that's exactly what God did for Paul. Look down with me again in verse 16. He says, God was well pleased to reveal his son in me 
so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and I returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. So for 14 years, Paul's doing a little bit of ministry, right? He's apparently doing a little bit of preaching, but Paul has not launched out into his life's work. He hasn't begun to plant churches among the Gentiles. He hasn't written any Bible yet. What's he doing? Well, largely he's being trained by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is delivering the doctrine to him that will create the foundation for the entire church. Jew and Gentile declared righteous just by faith. Jew and Gentile on equal footing. Jesus Christ from the Jews, but not just for the Jews. Freedom in Jesus Christ. And Paul's character is being transformed. For 14 years, Paul is being changed from an angry, violent aggressor into a manifestation of grace, one who can actually back up with his life the gospel that he's preaching. For 14 years, God has him, in a sense, largely hidden and being transformed. And if you look throughout the Bible, that's the pattern. Joseph didn't go from being a son of Jacob to ruling Egypt. And it wasn't in Joseph's plan to be sold as a slave. Now, he got a pretty good gig as a slave, right? He's in a nice house, it's comfortable, he rises to authority, but then the master of the house, his wife, lies and Joseph ends up in prison. And he's probably thinking to himself, why me, God, (laughs) right? God, what are you doing? Why can't I serve you? Maybe you feel that sometimes. God, it feels like I'm just kind of set aside. I I really want to be serving you. Maybe you feel like, gosh, I'm I'm set on the side. Well, perhaps God is just digging that foundation deeper. Transforming your character so that you can serve him. Before he takes you and he puts you next to Pharaoh. Saves your family and saves others around you. I don't know. You see that pattern, though. Joseph's life, Moses' life. Moses is 40 years in Pharaoh's court. And according to Acts, he had this sense from God that he was supposed to deliver his people. And he got so excited about that job, he goes out, kills an Egyptian. And as a result, he spends 40 more years in the desert. At age 80, Moses started his life's work. I hope it doesn't take me that long to have my character transformed so God's ready to put me into service. But, you know, sometimes God does that. He, he gives us those times in the desert. It happens to many people. David was anointed by Samuel. Samuel anointed him, and what did David do? He went straight to Jerusalem and sat on a throne, right? No, his dad said, go back to the sheep. You're not sitting on any thrones around our house. Go back and sit on the rock and watch the sheep. 
And so that's what David did. And what was God doing? God was teaching David how to worship him and he was developing him into a man after his own heart so that he could shepherd God's people, Israel. But it didn't happen just like that. Jesus spent 30 years submitting to his parents and learning the trade of carpentry. And then he spent three years changing the world. God may be doing the same kind of thing in your life, just digging that foundation deeper, transforming you. Why? Because he longs to use you. He didn't rescue you to sit you at the end of the bench. Or you may have periods of time where God is really working hard just on your character and it feels like you're not being used. Those are critical times to allow God to change you and transform you. But it is his intention to use you. And just like Paul, he didn't stick him on the end of the bench and say, you're an embarrassment. No, he changed him and made him into a vessel worthy of being used. We should look at the last section of Paul's life again. Verse 15, let's read this one more time. He says, but when God who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me into his service so that I would preach the gospel among the Gentiles, even from my mother's womb. In other words, what Paul's saying is the grace of God was operating in my life even before I believed in Jesus Christ. God was lining up all of these things in my life. Paul was born into a Jewish home, but he was born in a Gentile city, and so he learned Greek He understood Greek culture. He studied Greek philosophy. But then his parents sent him to Jerusalem and he was educated in theology by one of the greatest teachers of the day. So he knew Hebrew and he knew Hebrew theology, but he also knew Greek and he knew Greek philosophy. He was a man who could go anywhere and he could put the the great truths of Yahweh and eventually Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, into terms that people could understand. He could write scripture in, in excellent Greek so that the people of the day could read God's word. All these things God was lining up even before Paul knew Jesus Christ. Well, you know, God's doing the same thing in your life. He's going to bring great things into your life. Maybe you were born into a Christian home and you had wonderful parents. It's such a blessing. Give thanks. God is using that to dig your foundation deep so you can be used. Or maybe God's bringing really hard things into your life. Like Joseph's slavery. You come from a family that was divorced or there was abuse or there's things you look back and you say, why God, why did you do that? God is using all of those things so that you will be able to relate to others and to have a platform in which you can speak Christ's healing words into the lives of others. God uses all those things. He doesn't waste any of our trials. Remember in Paul's life when, when he received that thorn in the flesh, we don't know what it was, but it was probably something physical. It was, it was pain and it was suffering. And Paul said three times, I kept going back. How about removing it now? How about removing it now? How about removing it now? And God said, no, because my grace is sufficient for you. Because power is perfected in weakness. The things that you think, those are deficits. Those are things against me. Those are strikes against me. God says, yeah, but I can make those into power in your life. Because now you'll be able to speak into the lives of others because you have experienced the grace of God, even in hardship and trial. Now I look back on my own life and I see, I see so many illustrations of this. Now when I look back and see all of these evidences of God taking hard things and using them now in my life, it gives me confidence as I'm facing a new trial. Okay, God can use this. I think about a few in particular I was thinking about this week as I was reflecting on my um, elementary school experience. We moved around a lot. Before I was at that school, we had moved four or five times. 
Uh, We moved out of New York after eighth grade. That's a hard time to move for a kid. And that was really hard, but we moved. We left New York and we went to Michigan. And we were in Michigan only nine months. I spent ninth grade in Michigan, but my dad's job didn't work out there. Then he didn't have a job at the end of ninth grade. So mom and I went back to New York and I started 10th grade back in New York. I finished a little bit of 10th grade, about two and a half months, and then we moved to Texas. Well, you know, it's hard to move after 8th grade. It's hard to move after 9th grade. It's hard to move partway through 10th grade. That wasn't fun. You know, and at the time I was going through it, I was like, this stinks. (laughs) Looking back, I see one of the things, there are probably many things, but one of the things God was doing in my life was he was teaching me how to make friends. Because you walk into the cafeteria and you're the only kid sitting by yourself. Well, you know what? You better get up and walk over and say, hi, my name's Brian. I'm new here. <laughs> yeah, we know you're new here. You sound like a New Yorker. Well, you're not from a Texas. Yeah, you know. Well, God taught me how to do this. And it's really remarkable to a lot of people, but I'm an introvert. I'm an introvert who loves people. Isn't that weird? But I love people, and one of the things I've learned, because I've, I've, I've moved so many places and lived so many different places, is people are so fascinating to me. People are so interesting. Everybody has a great story, and I love to find out about that story, and I'm not faking it. They're really interesting. Well, God, it was painful, and it wasn't fun, but God was making that characteristic in me so that I could reach out to others. I graduated from college. I was ready to get married. At least in my mind, I was. <laughs> I wasn't in God's mind. But, you know, I thought, yeah, you know, you, you, you graduate and get married, right? You're 22 and then you get married. That's when you get married. At least at Texas A&M. <laughs> so the spring, man, you better be in something serious ramping up, right? Because, you know, you got everybody gathered graduation weekend. That would be fine. That we, we just do it all in one weekend. <laughs> but that didn't happen. So I I got married at 31. That wasn't my plan. I was lonely. I know what it's like to feel lonely and be alone. I know that. And I know that I can't always solve that for other people, but I know what it feels like and I can relate to that. And my wife and I got married. We had our plan as to when we would have kids. And that didn't happen either. So we waited and we waited and there were a lot of tears. It was really hard. I know what it's like to wait and to wonder. A few years ago, I had three surgeries right in a row, and I was in so much pain. And I know what it's like to be in a lot of pain and and experience that fear. Am I always going to be in pain? Is this ever going to go away? Can Can I live like this? I look back and I think, I wouldn't again sign up for any of those experiences. However, God used all of those things to allow me to, to understand people and relate to people. Now, God's doing exactly the same thing in your life. And for Paul, he looks back and he says, you know, I shouldn't have been chosen, but God chose a person like me so people could look at me and they say, oh, well, I guess I can be chosen too. I haven't killed anybody like Paul did. God can choose you. So when Paul gets his apostleship, he's not proud. Let me read you one passage here, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he, that is the resurrected Jesus Christ, appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And yet, God 
chose me. Paul's going through Galatians chapter 2. He's not proud and he's not boastful. He's just saying, look, I received my apostleship directly from Jesus Christ, just like every apostle. Nobody says, hey, I'm going to be an apostle. No, God reaches down and selects those people. And by the grace of God, he selected me, but I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the chief of the sinners. I'm a manifestation of God's grace. I want to give you three applications from this passage. Oh, I just forgot to show you all that stuff. Um, slides will be on the, uh, on the internet. Okay, application. Okay, first, you are not beyond the reach of the gospel. You are not beyond the reach of the gospel. This is what grace means. If you're sitting there and saying, yes, I am. If you only knew. Jesus Christ does know. And still he says to you, I want you to be with me. I want you in my family. So again, I I beg you this morning, speak to God and say, God, thank you for making it possible for me to be in your family through Jesus Christ. I, I accept that invitation. Adopt me. Bring me in. Because Christ paid for all of my sins and I thank you that you know me and know everything about me, even my hidden thoughts, the deepest, darkest stuff, and still you choose me. Thank you, God for choosing me in Christ. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel. That also means, uh, if you are a believer, that you look around and you see folks um, who are living crazy lives, they're not beyond the reach of the gospel. I remember uh, one time, I used to work out at Gold's Gym, and uh, I remember one time there was a guy who was working out in there, and he was, you know, you could tell he's just totally consumed with his body. He was taking steroids. He's spending every minute, he's looking in the mirror, and, and I remember very vividly in my heart just kind of blowing him off. I feel ashamed that I did, but I, yeah, I did, you know, I just, uh, you know, he's, he's beyond reach. He's hardened, he's into other stuff, he's not going to be receptive to the gospel, and I kind of blew him off. Then uh, after I, I felt that, thought that in my mind, I remember a few weeks later, a friend, a mutual friend who worked out at Gold's, he said, hey man, you will not believe this most amazing thing happened. I saw a guy trust Christ last week. He goes, really? Oh, tell me about it. He goes, yeah, well, you remember that guy in Gold's? I was like, "Uh, you stink, Brian. You're a bad person. Uh, So sure enough, he said, yeah, you know, we're working out. And I saw him. I said, hey, can I work out with you? We started working out. We're talking about this and that. And the conversation turned to spiritual things. And I happened to just have a tract in my my workout bag. So we sat on the bench and I just read him the track. And, and I said, you know, do you want to believe that Jesus Christ died for sins? Do you believe that? And he said, yes. So right in the middle of goals, we prayed and he received Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? I go, yeah, praise the Lord. Dang, you know, oh. well, there are people all around you and maybe family members and you're just going, nah, it just, it couldn't happen. Oh, you know, they're, they're, they're going a different direction. They're, they won't be receptive. You don't know what God is doing in their hearts, but you do know that Jesus Christ died for that person. So now in my mind, whenever I am tempted, I I look at somebody, I see them, and I see their lives broken and a mess, and I'm tempted to just kind of blow them off. I, I have a little line I run through my mind. I say, for whom Christ died? For whom Christ died? And I see somebody, and there may be just a condescending attitude in my mind. I say, for whom Christ died? For whom Christ died. That's exactly the kind of person for whom Christ died. And the most important thing about a person is do they know Jesus Christ or do they not? And Christ died for that person. For whom Christ died. You know, I just have to have stuff like that in my mind to keep me from thinking stupid stuff. 
And think truth. Christ died for that person. You are not beyond the reach of the gospel, nor is anyone around you. Okay? Second, you are not beyond the power of God's grace. Maybe you have believed in Jesus Christ, but you say, Brian, I, I'm, I, the stuff I'm struggling with is so deep and dark, Jesus couldn't change me. Man, I tell you, lie from the pit of hell. <laughs> this, Jesus specializes in tough cases. He wants to take the toughest case and manifest his grace so people look in and they say, wow, that can only be explained by the power of God because no one could pull themselves up out of that. Okay, no one is beyond the power of God's grace. Okay, let's go back to Gold's Gym. Very mystical, spiritual place for me. Right? <laughs> Remember, one time, my dad and I used to work out together at Gold's and we were walking in one time and we saw a guy that we had known for years, a mutual friend and and he was just—he was a Christian, just living like hell. Uh, totally had turned away from the Lord. And again, <laughs> you know, I, I just felt in my heart, there's not a, really a point. He's hardened. He's turned away from God. And uh, we both saw him at the same time. My dad says, you know, I need to reconnect with him and, and really encourage him to start walking with the Lord again. I go, yeah, great idea. You know, again, <laughs> there goes the pastor. <laughs> just judging people. <laughs> so... So sure enough, you know, it, my dad started uh, building that relationship again, and I wouldn't say it's just through the influence of my, my dad, but there were other Christians at that time, that moment really started coming around him, and he went through some trials in his life, and his life was going this way, and God, it was just like Damascus Road, man, God turned him around, 180, and his life changed. He is now consistently leading people to study God's word. He is consistently leading people to faith in Jesus Christ. His life is a complete manifestation of the grace of God. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Grace is power. My power will be perfected in you. It's grace. Okay? Third, you are not disqualified from serving Jesus Christ. If you have breath in your body, it means that Jesus still wants to use you to honor and to glorify him. There may be things that aren't the best place for you to minister or to serve, but if you're alive, that means God wants to use you. He wants to take your life, transform your life, and then put you out on display as a manifestation of his grace. No one is disqualified. As long as you are living, God wants to rescue your life, change your life, and use you. Because that is what he does. That is what grace is. Grace is unconditional acceptance in Jesus Christ, and then it is power to change your life. So as we close, what I'd like for us to do is just to go before the Lord. I don't know where each individual is, and I don't know what the Lord wants to speak to you, but maybe it's in one of these three areas. So I ask you just to take a few moments and go before the Lord and say, Lord, speak to me. What is it you have for me today? And then let me close this in prayer. Father, we need your spirit to speak. We are surrounded and bombarded with Satan's lies constantly. Reminding us of our sin and our failure and our unworthiness. And taking our attention off of Jesus Christ. And the work that he accomplished for us. And so Father I pray this morning that you would put our eyes back on Jesus Christ. I pray for each person sitting here. That you would speak a very living and active and fresh word. Father, we thank you 
for this understanding of your grace that you love us unconditionally in Jesus Christ and the power that that speaks into our lives. I pray, Father, that we would embrace that and we would see you continually transforming us. And Father, I pray that we would see your work in our lives so that we could tell our stories just like Paul does of how the gospel of grace has changed us. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.